0: Zach Servideo from Boston Speaks Up. I'm here with the sponsor, Reed. Silicon Valley Bank is a proud sponsor of Boston Speaks Up. For more than 35 years, Silicon Valley Bank has helped innovative companies and their investors move bold ideas forward fast. SVB provides targeted financial services and expertise through its offices at 53 State Street in downtown Boston and in Newton and innovation centers around the world. With commercial, international, and private banking services, SVB helps address the unique needs of Boston's innovators. Learn more at svb.com. Zach Servideo here from Boston Speaks Up. I'm here with entrepreneur coach, AK Ikwakar. Hey, AK, how are you?
1: Doing good, Zach. How are you, man?
0: I'm doing well. I'm doing really well. And I'm, I'm even better over the past week, um, having, having met you and, and, and quickly built a, a budding friendship. So I appreciate you hopping on the podcast with me so shortly after meeting um, and uh, shout out to uh, to our buddy Rob Hughes over yeah, at First. <laughs> yeah, up, Rob? Thanks, <laughs> Rob Hughes over at First Republic Bank, connecting us last week. Really appreciate it, Rob. Uh, and for listeners, I'm going to read through just a brief intro, and um, it's just so everyone knows, you know who, who, who our guest is today, and then we can kind of flow into the conversation. So, AK Walker, also known as Coach AK, is an entrepreneur educator, consultant, strategist, storyteller, and former top 10 world-ranked athlete, both in the hurdles and the 400 meter from the University of Oregon. He's founded several companies, including Empower to Play, a sports diplomacy project working with the U.S. government, as well as Elite Styles, a made-to-measure clothing provider for athletes and working professionals. He's traveled to more than 30 countries, working with students, athletes, coaches, governmental agencies, celebrities, victims of terrorism, and CEOs. Originally from Colorado, Walker has made Boston his home for the past decade. Much of his work aims to foster cross-cultural relations and maximize economic development in under-resourced communities through the power of sports and education. Amazing. Uh, th- that's, a, that's an impressive background and I barely scratched the surface. AK, um, th- thanks for being on today.
1: No, I appreciate it. Um, and like you said, I think we all have so many different layers to each and every one of us. And, you know, something big with me is it's like I have a little girl, um, my father. Uh, so there's multiple different uh, you know, layers to each of us outside of what we do between the hours of you know, nine to five.
0: Right on. Yeah. Like I just gave Boston speaks up listeners, like the most abbreviated nine to five version of AK, but as you'll discover, as we start to, 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 to flow in um, the conversation, you know, the, what I've come to love about AK is just in the brief time I've known him is, is his unbranded framework. And and um, and since you kind of poked into that, AK, let's actually let's talk about that a little bit. Like, you know, it's something you've formal formalized over the last couple of years. But when we did the pre-podcast um, Q and A, like you said, it's something that's really just been formulating for you your whole life, and not just putting people in the boxes. Um, why don't you share with me and with listeners like what unbranded means, and and you know what sort of mission that you're on to help. Um, all sorts of different people sort of unbrand themselves, if, if, if you will.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing about unbranding is that in a way, we're all unbranded. <laughs> we're naturally unbranded, but we actually put ourselves and others into these boxes. Now, what does that mean? Uh, yes, I am a, you know, an entrepreneur. Uh, yes, I am you know, uh, a father. But in the world that we live in, everybody wants to know, what is your one-sentence byline, right? And, you know, for me, for Unbranded, all of my experiences have helped shape me to who I am. But when we usually put ourselves into these individual boxes, especially right now, usually during the political season, either you're a Democrat or a Republican, either you're Black or white, either you're this or that, and not realizing that um, there's multiple different characteristics that make us who we are. So the unbranded process has been through my whole entire life, but I've now actually developed uh, uh, an exercise that I've been lucky to do around the world to help people also understand the multiple layers that make them who they are.
0: That's amazing. So let's talk about that in light of this, the, the moment of time we're in. I mean, there's on a daily, nightly basis, daily, nightly basis, there's protests around America, um, not just for, but certainly like a major catalyst for these protests was was the um, the murder of of George Floyd at the at the hands of at the hand of um, a police officer in, in Minneapolis, and I think you know everyone could see that, and 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 I think it really um, it's resonated with people in all sorts of ways, and folks have taken to the streets, focus uh, folks have have taken to social media. Um, what you know, what is it that um, You know, speak a bit to you know what what it is that you're you know you've been doing um, to help sort of you know bridge the inequality gap. But in particular, right now in this moment, like, what's your um, you know share your point of view and 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 and, and and you do have a bit of an optimistic optimistic outlook on sort of how society can improve. During what is a really difficult time for the country right now, but just speak sort of freely on, on what you've been feeling emotionally, just sort of the last couple of weeks and how you're turning that into productivity.
1: Right. Well, I mean, when we think about even the, you know, the, what happened to George Floyd as individuals saw a man literally, uh, you know, his life being taken away from the same people that are protect and serve. But in addition, we're also dealing with, you know, coronavirus. I mean, there's so many other factors that we're all dealing with all in this, uh, you know, really in this pivotal moment. And, you know, the work that I do uh, traveling and speaking around the world. So in, in one ways, I'm using my voice, but also as I've been traveling around a lot, I've also heard, you know, perspectives from both sides. And when I mean by both sides, I don't mean police officers and Um, the African-American community, I would say people that are more along the lines of what happened at George Floyd. And now the people that are now becoming more aware to what's happening, Um, you know, and through those conversations, it's not for me to go to the other side and say, Hey, now wake up. Now here's what you have to do. My whole strategy has been more through storytelling. Right. Uh, I just had a session a couple of days ago where I was working with a, a group of individuals and I asked them a series of questions. And the questions I asked first was, you know, is anybody in this group, of, you know, a twin? Raise your hand. Is anybody here a parent? You know, raise your hand. Is anybody, you know, travel overseas? Has anybody, you know, like Monopoly, for example? Um, and then I asked the final question: Is anyone here black? And the room was all white people. And obviously, myself and you know the other uh, moderators raised their hand that were African American. And I said, it's crazy to think that we can have so many things in common, but it is one characteristics that really has, can change somebody's overall experience and how they navigate around the world. Mm. And I believe that this situation is more of a human rights issue because nobody deserves, uh, or no, I mean, actually I should say, everybody deserves to be able to walk around the street freely and not be killed by the hands of the people who are supposed to protect and serve just as much a woman should have just as much right to get to a car safely without being sexually assaulted. So some of the work that I've been doing now is really how do you bridge the gap? How do you communicate to both sides? So there's a shared understanding. Mm-hmm.
0: I love the positive and productive mindset you have, but let's, let's kind of go back in, in, in time a little bit and, and just talk about like some of the, I mean, there's some, there's some interesting facts that you shared in the pre-podcast interview for example you've been pulled over by police probably more than 70 times uh that's ridiculous
1: (laughs) (laughs) well it's crazy as we're going through these conversations uh and talking with some people that i know uh, i grew up in arvada colorado it's not very diverse and my first experience with racism was i mean it was probably when i was younger i didn't you know, I may not have been able to quit it, but there's a lot of times I was singled out. But there's one memory that I really remember the most and I was junior in high school. And I got a Christmas card from uh, two students. One of them actually happened to be the principal's daughter that had a black man hanging from a tree. And it said, Happy Kwanzaa. Right. Um, and whenever something happened like this, is, this is my upbringing, for example. What uh, happens to a
0: young girl? I mean, principal's daughter or not. What happens to that young woman, uh, girl who did that? Does that?
1: Nothing. As a matter of fact, I was a lot of my high school career was a lot of those situations. Wow. Um, that was my everyday living growing up. There was a lot of stuff and I have a twin brother and a twin sister uh, and that was me growing up. I just thought it was, not, I'm not going to say it was part of life, but uh, you know, when you try to report and nothing happens, you realize you just kind of hold it in. You know, I've been pulled over you know, 70 times and of those, 10 of those have been the officer with you know, hands on hip yelling at me to put my hands up all because I had an air freshener, like literally a scented air freshener in my rear view mirror. What is it about
0: an air freshener?
1: That... <laughs> well, I, I know, I know it sounds, I know it sounds crazy. It's happened to my yeah. brother. It's usually they come to the car. They're trying to search in my car for something. And at that last moment, like, why did you come over? What's it? And they would point to the air freshener <laughs> That's so for funny. a reason, right? I've had op- op- times when officers have come with me and my brother and they literally just open up the doors like just full on floor open up the doors um and just start looking in like this is not standard police protocol and and Um, and obviously I don't get a ticket yeah A K, like
0: I'm just I gotta double click on this for a second is it because is it it, I don't I don't want to assume but is the assumption here like you're they believe you're like smoking weed and like the air fresheners to get rid of the smell like like that's such a to me the air it's it's such an odd excuse for them to to give to to sort of um infringe upon your rights like that
1: i mean i used to live in redondo beach and when i lived in redondo beach yeah um i used to work at the the cheesecake factory in redondo beach i was training at that time and if i were to leave after 10 p.m uh nine times out of ten i would get pulled over so part of the 70 and when i got pulled over they would ask me where am i going i'm like i just got out of work they would ask me to recite the daily specials for the day um if i got it right they would let me go Wow. obviously every single time so the reason why this is so crazy is because i was having a, a conversation with a friend this week and I asked her, uh, she's uh, a white female, said, so what do you do when like, when you got pulled over? Like, What was your reasoning? And she looked at me and she was all like, um, I've actually never been pulled over. And it was like, what was so crazy? Was like My astonishment of her never getting pulled over was just as much as astonishment that she had, but I've been pulled over 70 times. Yeah. You know? and, yeah. and the reason why it's so crazy is because You know, yes, I've been able to travel around the world. I've worked with big companies like Google, I've a former professional athlete, but I don't have that credential on my chest when I'm out in the street. And actually all that shouldn't even matter anyway. Right. Uh, But it shows that when you go outside, they oftentimes they might just see you for the one characteristic that you are instead of ignoring all the other things that make you who you are.
0: Yeah, well said. Well, so to, I mean, speak, I'd love for you to speak a bit more about your childhood. So you're you had five older siblings, but like three older siblings and then two older triplets. Right. So you're the sixth in, in, in line. Um, your parents are from Nigeria. Your dad mm-hmm. served in the Nigerian army and, and, um, it's not, so so. When, your parents immigrated to America through your father pursuing a PhD.
1: Yeah, yeah. So my, my father, they moved to the United States in 1976, and my dad was getting his PhD at the Colorado School of Mines. And I'm the youngest of six, and I'm actually a triplet, so I have a, a twin brother and a twin sister. Um. And so for me, it's weird because they talk about also, we'll say, civil rights. Like my parents were in Nigeria during that time. And so where they, when they came over here to the United States, uh, they just have a, they had a different perception because they were coming because uh, they were able to receive a visa to pursue a PhD. right? Okay. And so their experience in trying to navigate in the United States was very different because in their country, they were you know, the best and the brightest. And then now they're coming to this environment where they're being questioned about, you know, um, you know, who their background is or what their background is, or are they smart or not smarter, They capable or not capable. And he's coming for his PhD. Mm-hmm.
0: What was it? I mean, do you ever talk to your parents about what, like, I mean, that shock of like f- coming from, You know, being affluent members of you know Nigerian society, and then coming to Golden, Colorado. Like, what was Golden, Colorado like? Was there a lot of um, like people of color
1: in Golden, Colorado? No, I mean, I would say for me, I haven't grown up a lot of places um, of of color. Um, You know, for me, I, I grew up in Colorado. My parents came in Golden, and that's not far from where we grew up. So. For them, we had, they, had, they had family friends, but they also were able to bring other Nigerians over uh, mm-hmm. to create this Nigerian association of, 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 of community members in Colorado. So they're part of that big wave of Nigerians coming over to Colorado. Um, for us, they really didn't talk to us about um, you know, their experience. I would say I was, I was pretty much... Uh, I wasn't aware of a lot of the, the racial dynamics that my parents had to go through. I, I knew what I had to deal with, but I actually never told my parents what I dealt with. Like they still don't know today right. uh, some of the stuff that we, we, we went through. Uh, but they, they were amazing um, um, in, in so many ways. They made us feel as though that we didn't have to worry about anything, but imagine first generation United States and having six mm-hmm. kids, you know, yeah. Uh, and I'm six foot three, two hundred and twenty pounds, and I'm like the smallest in my family. <laughs> Bunch of giants, very much giants. Uh, so, for, so for us, it was this theme that we always had to, you know, navigate on our own. Um, but you know, we were lucky because we had each other growing up, right.
0: So it's interesting you kind of mentioned because you, you you actually grew up in in Wheat Ridge, Colorado. So it sounds like that's not too far from Golden. But you've lived uh, you've lived some other places. You mentioned Redondo Beach. Uh, obviously, now uh, you you've lived in Boston for quite a bit. And you mentioned you've you've kind of always you've not always been around like a, a a lot of other Black people. And and in the pre podcast Q and A. You said, you know, at home, I was Nigerian in the community. I was black, but with other black people, I wasn't black enough. And, and, and I want you to speak to that a little bit. And I mean, I imagine partly that comes from the fact that you were in predominantly white communities. And then when you were around maybe a lot of black people like, you know, that maybe were from predominantly black communities, the, the, you know, what what was that like? What was that like for you? And when did you start experiencing that? Was that in college um and and just yeah, if you can unpack that a little bit, yeah, like, yeah, I, yeah, I appreciate yeah. you sharing.
1: Yeah, for me, so for, for one, uh, you know, growing up in my household, it was very Nigerian. Meaning, my full name is Akobundu Chebulem right? Koba AK. But uh, in my household, very by Nigerian, had Nigerian food, Nigerian clothes. But when I would go outside. Uh, into the community in which I lived, especially when I was all white, I was still known as still kind of the foreign kid, mm-hmm. right? Meaning when we bring food to school for lunch, it'd just be different than they would have, right? right. Uh, and then when I would go to other places around, um places that maybe more predominantly black, I mean, I could, we could all navigate, but they might say things like, uh, you know, why do you talk like that? Or why do you, why do you sound like that? from right. the UK, like it just felt like they couldn't gauge me correctly. And I've always had to, I would say I've always had to be able to code switch in, into different rooms and different environments. But my experience was much different. Yeah. Uh, you know, my parents came here to get their PhD. I've never had to, I've never been in an environment where i had to deal with violence in my neighborhood. It wasn't something I had to deal with. But when I got to college, um, I went to the University of Oregon, then it started to get a little bit more diverse. I had people from all around the country that, you know, some individuals came from, you know, East St. Louis, some people came from, you know, different parts of the the country, and there's things I just couldn't relate with fully, right? I was also the kid that was in college that was a track and field athlete but was also doing drama, right? Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was also, I was doing drama. I was doing all these, you know, things that people... Tradition, like, hey, that's you know kind of soft for you to do uh you know as time now moves on forward they now appreciate it, as I'm now speaking I feel comfortable on stage but it's always feeling like the odd man out and that yeah. really ended when I traveled overseas and I realized that the way that they view black Americans is very different in America and outside of America completely how's how that um, like, for example, I do a lot of work in China. And I know yeah. people might say that, you know, in China, there's a lot of racism, but the way in which they see black Americans, their experience is through looking at like watching basketball. So they might see Kobe Bryant or LeBron James. So when they see, it's more sometimes obviously from a, a positive mindset. Uh, so the black American has a very different connotation or experience than you might say just an African coming to China or traveling overseas. Uh, So oftentimes it's easier for me to navigate in China and overseas and sometimes it is to navigate in Boston.
0: I mean, would you say you felt more respected by the average stranger in China than you
1: have in the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, I do. I mean, to be honest, there's been multiple times I've been considering moving um, overseas to Southeast Asia Uh, because it is. I've done a lot of work in the Philippines. And it was also, I mean, in addition to the race, there's also just within the United States, the, how do I say it? You know, business marketing, the idea of always wanting more. And I remember when I was in the Philippines and I was doing some some work with a company that I started called Empower to Play, we did sports diplomacy. And I remember sitting um, with this these, these kids, this family that literally lived in this one room house. There was like six of them there with a light in the center, like literally a small room a family sharing the house. Mm-hmm. And from the outside, most people would say, don't go in these environments because it's dangerous. They might steal something from you. But to be honest, it was the most freeing experience. They would literally give you the shirt off their back to, <clears throat> they didn't care if you had you know, Nike's on or nothing on. I mean, they just didn't really care um, about the materialism. And the reason what it changed my life so much was because they were able to find happiness with literally just, you know, the, you know, shirt sure shoes and they could all just have a good time. And I'm sitting there with, you know, having a full backpack and a full suitcase full of clothes, changing clothes every single day, right. and still not being as happy. And it made me change my thoughts about happiness. It was that moment when nobody cared about black, white, tall, short, whatever, and Felt truly of freedom to be myself. You know, when I come into Boston, I have to be somebody. Obviously, they, yeah. they don't have to be, but it's such a small city that like, oh, that's AK, the sports guy, or the coach, or the entrepreneur. And how many times I wish I could just like step away and be whatever I wanted, and don't have to fit some particular box.
0: Yeah, um, I want to talk about empower to play a little bit, but I kind of want to stay on this this track you're on, and it kind of it kind of bleeds into something you share with me ahead of today's chat, which is what brought you to Boston was, you know, your your girlfriend received your PhD from MIT and, and you, and you kind of, you know, you spent a lot of time around that circle. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's much of a secret that the academic institutions of, of sort of, um, of Boston, sort of like the new England area ha- have dealt with their fair share of sort of like, you know, racism. Um, and, and, and in some ways, like not, not, you know, it's not that there's not access or opportunity offered to people of color, but perhaps like it, it it's, it's the, the manner in which the frameworks are developed are not perhaps as, um, you know, s- sort of thoughtfully and naturally sort of like laid out for, for people to sort of like cohabitate, co-educate, et cetera. And and without me going into detail on the things I've read on the matter, like I'd love for you to share with me, like, what is that MIT circle like? And what is that, you know, you you mentioned that you you felt probably most out of place in Boston around the academic institutions. And I I, I can gather why, but, but but you, you tell me, you tell listeners, like where, where do you feel like improvement needs to happen? Like, where is that sort of false sense of, you know, I think right now there's a lot of prominent white people in Boston that are, you know, much, you know, much to my annoyance, celebrating themselves for, you know, participating in diversity and social change, and and I find it annoying. And I think the only thing I want to hear from people publicly is like what they can do better. Um, and so maybe you can shed some light on like. You know, what can we do better? And specifically, like, why, you know, why do you feel a little out of place, you know, around, you know, a circle like MIT? I'm
1: not going to say just MIT or necessarily, uh, a white or even black necessarily, but I would say is Boston does say they're, you know, diverse in some ways. Uh, now, I used to live in Los Angeles, California, where you literally have people from all around the world and multiple different sectors but in Boston it's diverse but they're all here for the academic you know it's I mean obviously they have more academic institutions than anywhere around the world so you feel like you come to a place that you feel is diverse but people all are all coming from the same background right from these rules mm-hmm. and then you'll also notice at the same time but because, you know, the educational institutions usually have students from a younger age, as soon as they graduate, they oftentimes leave. So the individuals that are from 30 and above, it's not as diverse, but even though 30 and under with the students, um, it's one of those factors where, uh, they all have this particular. I'm not going to say mindset, but they just have this this educational, academic bubble. And I say, I say this is kind of weird because I used to work at you know educational institutions. I used to work at Phillips Exeter Academy and the St. Paul School. So I've come from that background, but it's just a very different world view. Especially if I'm doing a lot of work in in, in the business sector, it's, it's just hard to explain.
0: Yeah. Well, do you think there's any um, any things that could be done differently? Cause I mean, that's a problem in general. It's not, I mean, pr- people of all colors, it's, it's a problem for young, you know, white entrepreneurs that, that leave Boston, like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg's the most famous, but plenty of, plenty of founders from Boston leave Boston. And, you know, they go out to Silicon Valley, they go out to other places. I don't think they necessarily go to Silicon Valley because it's more diverse. Um, but I, like you have lived in LA and LA is a really interesting and, um, in some ways, um, I think, yeah, well, you know, well, you know, well distributed and sort of diverse workforce. Certainly the entertainment industry has some really good, you know, good diversity to it. Um, it has plenty of issues to it as well. Um, but but are there any, you know, I do have this romantic mindset of Boston too, and that it's it's sort of like the, the, the perfect recipe for progress. And so, um, you know, a lot of the programs that maybe haven't gotten there, their biggest, um, you know, haven't got been granted the biggest stage. Maybe need to be celebrated more and scaled and, and 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 replicated more. Like for example, like we talked about this before. We went live today. Like resilient coders, mm-hmm. you know, like a, a very intentional coding boot camp for people. You know, for people of color from underrepresented communities going through a coding boot camp, graduating in I think sixteen week course and you know, getting an average salary of $95,000 at a Boston company. Um, You know, we need more, you know, we need more of that. But the very fact that that program exists in Boston, I think is indicative of the type of program that Boston is uniquely suited to um, be the home um, for. And, you know, David Del Santillas, who founded that company, is a Mexican immigrant. And, you know, I think there's, there's some really interesting, um, companies that, you know, coming out of Boston from, from immigrant founders. I talked to another one recently. I don't think I told you about this one yet, but Wafa Arbash, she's the CEO of a company called Workaround. And so Mm -hmm. she's from Syria. And so she had an interesting, maybe similar to your parents coming to Colorado. She moved from Syria to Utah and was amongst the Mormons and, and was on like a a study program and then war broke out in Syria and she was actually allowed to seek, um, uh, you know, sort of full-time stay here in the States. And so she, so she basically embraced her family in Utah, embraced her and there. She calls, you know, she spends all her holidays with them. She got uh, accepted to a program in Boston, moved to Boston, got immersed in the tech community here, which is very supportive and she founded Workaround, and Workaround employs three thousand plus Syrian refugees that are displaced around the world, and in many cases can't work locally where they are. And she's putting them to work, and she's doing that out of Boston. And so, um, I definitely always like to give you know, I like to give you know, credit while I'm throwing some shade at the Boston community because I think we have all these little kernels of like. I I was in, I was in LA for five years. I can't find one workaround of resilient coders. Um, yeah. and it's a really interesting, it's a really interesting place. I think for me, it's like, what? how do we get things to really pop and how do we lead with the workarounds of resilient coders and, and, uh, and sort of lead with those programs and frameworks and how to, you know, how, how does, uh, it, 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 how does coach AK, you know, sit down with Marty Walsh and broadcast to the whole community, um, you know, the unbranded framework, like that's, that, that yeah. I think can really be powerful.
1: Yeah. Cause I think that's what it is. You know, when you look at Boston, um, it is very segregated, right? I think mean, we don't have to, I think that's obvious. It's very, very segregated within the city. And when it's, you have a situation that's extremely segregated, you're not able to get exposure or actually have these conversations with people that live on different sites. They'll go, if they, if they work in the city, it seems they get the city, they'll go south, they'll go to other areas in the Arizona city. And I know oftentimes that when people, let's say, you know, individuals I've talked to some, um, I want to try to navigate in the Boston startup scene that may be African-American, they say, well, I've never actually been around, uh, you know, a lot of people that are white. I'm like, well, what I want you to do is stop looking at them for just being their skin color, right, and yeah. vice versa. Yeah. And instead, like, it, like, we already know that business is about relationships, right? And if you're unable to engage in a conversation because you're too, you know, maybe it might be uncomfortable to to walk into the room, then we have to give you some frameworks. I and mean, that's why I would say, you know, a lot of the work that I've been doing with Unbranded is how can we find the areas that we connect on rather than what separates us right so for me if i you know work in Boston, i might connect on entrepreneurship i might connect on my sports background or i might connect on you know my past experience working in boarding schools and if that's not even hard i might just like hey cool nice hat you have on connect on something uh because i feel like right now what's causing a lot of the challenges are people are putting their you know pitchforks in the I was like, well i went to this school and i don't have this degree or I have, I'm in this sector and, and you're in that sector. And how can we start connecting on, on another layer outside of just what we do between the hours of nine to five or even just the shade of our skin? You know, when I'm in Boston, I mean, sorry, when I'm in LA, you can go to a restaurant and you have people from all over the world. They don't talk about diversity as much because they're just diverse. <laughs> you yeah. um, don't need to talk about it. But here we have to have those conversations because there's such a lack of exposure. Right. One thing I would love to do is uh, have a conversation and do the unbranded exercise with Marty Walsh. Uh, and because everybody probably just sees him as a mayor and not realizing that he also has multiple uh, different characteristics that make him who he is. Right. At the end of the day, my goal is how can we see people from more of their human aspects rather than this one box that we put people in. Right.
0: Well, I told you this before we went live, but in front of all listeners, um, when this podcast goes out, let's all, let's all hit up Marty Walsh, hit up the mayor's office, tell him that he's next. I'll, I'll kick myself out of the host chair. AK, you can host, you have Marty on, you do your exercise and portion of that conversation should, could be, can be a conversation that we put out on the, on the Boston speaks up platform. I'd love to help, uh, help broadcast that through the channels that we have.
1: And I'd be happy to happy to.
0: Yeah. That'd be cool. So to talk a little bit more about empower to play and, and sort of, I mean, you're, you, what you're scratching into with, with that last little bit you're talking about is the importance of putting yourself out there, networking, um, networking with p- different types of people, right? Right. Not just the people you're comfortable with, not just the people you look like or the people you went to school with, like you, you know, you're, you're as strong, you know, you're as strong as your network. Right. And, and um, you know, I, I think you and I are similar like this. Okay. I always tell my, my daughter, she's only three, you know, and her name's Mila and and you're, you know, you have, you have a seven year old daughter Haven and, and I imagine you may, may, you know, um, teach her similarly, but I always, I always tell, you know, Mila that there's, there's plenty of new friends to, to meet in the world. Um, and, And just always be, you know, always be open. And and it's interesting to have this conversation with the three-year-old because I'm creating a monster because now she wants to talk to everyone. But I'm like, (laughs) I'm like, like, everyone is, you know, and and now my wife's like, oh, she's going to be, you got to be careful because you can't just talk to all strangers. And I'm like, yeah, but every stranger can be a potential new friend. And so I'm like, Mila, everyone can be, everyone can be a potential new friend. I'm like, you always have to, you always have to be open-minded and give people the benefit of the doubt. And I think as she gets older and she gets to more vulnerable points in her life, I'll probably have to teach her like, you know, you got to be careful in these certain situations. But, um, I do believe that, that putting yourself out there, um, certainly putting myself out in the world in in vulnerable situations has, has helped me develop a network that, um, is far outside the network I would have had had I not, um, talk to me about, how that's that mindset is applied through empower to play, you know, why you started empower to play the mission and sort of, you know, maybe parts of how that framework can be applied or is being applied in Boston. I'd love to learn more and and potentially, you know, share it, participate in it um, to the extent that, that it's sort of applied in in the Boston community and beyond.
1: Yeah. And, and I either, you know, as I talk about empower to play, but just, you know, build on one of the points that you said, you know, even with your wife, Mila, at any point, at every point in our lives, the people that we're, we know that are friends with, you used, used to be a stranger at some point. There was always that first conversation that you had with somebody where they were a stranger. And you never realize where that can take you. That can be your really? relationship. That can be your future soulmate. And, you know, I usually talk about, there's a story when I think about is imagine if, you know, you and your family, uh, when they, when they, when they were, when they were, when you were growing up, they used to save money and put it in a shoebox and leave their bed. Right. That's how they used to save money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then one day you decided to like, you know, get on your bike and, you know, go 10 miles up the road. And you end up going to this, you know, this cafe. And as you at that cafe, you, you know, just order some food and, uh, the person asked so how do you want to pay? And as you're bringing out your, you know, wad of cash, the person next to you said, Oh, let me actually, you know, pay with my debit card. Uh, credit card. And you look at those scratching your head thinking, like, whoa, 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 what's, this, what's this credit card thing? Right. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, yeah, the, the credit card is like how you used to pay for things. You can actually still get one at the bank. And so you leave, you go to the bank, and you start having a conversation to tell it, and they tell you all about investing. Right. And so the, 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 the story goes on. as We're only going to be able to understand things based on the exposure that we have. And there is information right now that you can have or have a need that somebody already has. And I think one of the biggest challenges are, you know, I think big fallacies that we've told people, especially I would say in in immigrant cultures or even people of color is, um, you know, pick yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, just do the hard work. When in reality, I would say the biggest thing you should be doing is networking and connecting because people have the knowledge, they have the experience and the resources that you need. Um, and if you only keep yourself in your circle, you're only going to have that much exposure and knowledge based on the collective in the room. And oftentimes mm-hmm. I believe that you have to actually get yourself out there to have different exposure. Now, why is that connected to empower to play? Um, you know, I started empower to play in 2011 and all I really wanted to do was, uh, uh, you know, I was meeting up with a friend in the Philippines and I just wanted to have some fun. And they ended up doing this impromptu sports camp for the kids in the community, like 50 kids. And it went fairly well. Uh, we were actually teaching American football. And then the next year, we decided to go back and through some connections from Phillip Sector Academy, where I used to work, we got initial connections with the, with the State Department. Uh, and they started to actually help support us. And what we really do was we use unfamiliar sports to help bridge communities. But what made us unique in the work that we did is that all the resources had to come within the community, meaning the volunteers, the food, the equipment. The only thing we brought over was the football. Everything else had to happen within the community. So as we're setting up this event for the kids in the community, it's us working side by side. But the end goal is the camp. But the 10 days before is community members of people from all over the world working side by side together, realizing, oh yeah, we're not, all, we're not all that much different, right? Man. And we're working side by side. Uh, and then the, the, the reason how it ended up being after that was there was this, there was this, this girl, we're going to give some scholarships. And, uh, you know, as I was walking through the streets when we were doing this camp the second year, there were these kids that weren't able to go to school. And I started to talk to these kids, what happened to these kids that are unable to go to school? Um, they said that they usually go down these unhealthy unsafe life choices sometimes for the guys and the girls. And I was only making like $25,000 a year. I was an intern at Phillips Exeter Academy. And I said, you know, let me figure out what I can do to have, get these kids back into school. Um, and so I was able to select six kids that I was going to be funding to get them back into school. Uh-huh. And then there was this one girl, um, her name is Ray Lynn, this 13 year old girl that I really do want to give an opportunity to. So they're announcing the names of, of some of the, of, of the six students, I gave the, this name, Raylynn's name, to the person I was announcing the name. I was like, don't, don't announce your name, just like, hold on. So I just want to remember it when I get back, back home. And um, you know, unfortunately, but fortunately, they end up announcing her name. And all of a sudden, this woman behind me starts just breaking down, crying. And I'm like, okay, what's, 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 what's going on? And I asked her, that, what's going on? She says, well, Raylynn's my daughter, my husband just left me and now she can finally be the doctor that she dreams to be. Right. Wow. And I look around the crowd and there's, you know, 294 other kids that didn't get that opportunity. And it's actually when I came back um, a couple of days later is when I actually officially started a part play in, in 2013. And what happened is I just got people together that wanted to make a difference for other individuals and that was through not only just you know educational scholarships but also exposure right? a lot of the work i do is about exposure you're never going to realize what the the job of a lawyer is until you have a conversation with a lawyer and they demystify it and make it more possible for you to actually believe that you can achieve it
0: Who was, that, that's a that's amazing I uh, appreciate you sharing that story and i'm just kind of thinking on other like what are some of the um like how did it grow from there like that was 2013 i mean mm-hmm. over the course of the next five six seven years um uh, what are some of the bigger accompli- accomplishments milestones and and you know w- plans for the future
1: yeah so right now i would say you know i currently i mean say, like, i don't currently do imperative play i I'm talk about that momentarily. Mm-hmm. but um 2013 sixteen um, we were tasked with the, the State Department to help rebuild relationships between the United States and Haiti. And, uh, and And the whole and if you don't know, it's, it's this area called Siula Haiti, where it's one of the most dangerous neighborhoods in the world. And during this time, in 2016 I'm going to talk about this a little bit, but um, I needed to make a decision about I was either going to change for the 2016 Olympic Games or if I was gonna do this sports diplomacy initiative with the US government. Um, And through just a lot of reflection, I decided to actually do this sports diplomacy initiative with the the US government. Now, within the development, uh, uh, you know, we, we were able to get some funding, we were in Sports Illustrated, we got a lot of support. And I remember a week before, we were actually about to do this event in 2016, we were really, really just jazzed and excited because everything was working perfectly. Right. Uh, we, uh, in preparation, you know, everybody was able to, you know, it was easy to communicate with. But the funny thing is when we got down a week before the event, things just weren't working out the way that we expected them to. Mm-hmm. So for example, in preparation, everybody spoke English, but on the ground, everybody spoke French. Like I don't speak a of French. Uh, you know some of the sponsors that were coming on board, they came on board, but the week before they like, uh, you know, they backed out after we already, you know, delivered on our end of them, you know, what they what they were requesting. And I remember the the night before the event. and Mind you, the next day we're going to have the, the ambassador of the United States coming. We have 300 kids. We have we're actually doing some VR technology where you're able to live stream event to the world to the world in VR. We're the first company to do this. And I get a call the night before the event. And, uh, I, and the phone call says, the person says, hey, we need to come up with a whole bunch of money um, by tomorrow, or this is going to be the safety of my team getting out of the country as well as um, this event even going on. And at this moment, I it was like my really rock bottom moment. And I thought, like, my, before like, I thought my life, was going to change, I was going to win Espy, all that kind of stuff. And at that moment when I'm and it's really rock bottom moment, I get a phone call from my daughter. Uh, she's like three at the time. She's super excited, daddy, 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 guess what? I'm like, watch, watch. And uh, a lot she didn't know what was going on. And she says, uh, I drew your picture. And the picture was of me and her holding hands. Um, and it was actually at that moment that I realized that you know the, the work that I'm doing or even myself, there's more I'm more than just like an entrepreneur, I'm also a father. So this is kind of how a lot of this unbranded stuff started to happen. Because I realized that I didn't need to necessarily start, you know, a big organization to be able to do this work. This work can actually happen every single day. Right. Brick by yeah. brick. Yeah. Yeah, it can happen. I mean yeah. individuals can do that. You don't need to oh, make I a you don't need to make a company. You can actually right. bring people together to make this happen. Okay? Yeah. And so then I actually in two thousand sixteen I actually the organization um and a lot of the work i do is still in community develop community work and connecting people Uh, i work in a company called gear world where we work with victims of are affected by terrorism around the world ceos professional athletes students to help them craft and really tell their stories um, by really connecting through them through these really pivotal moments in their lives Um, you know the reason i think it's really important even today is we all have our individual lanes that we can take to make the world Um, the world in which it is, right? We can all find a way to give back. It can be either through a company, it can be through our own skill sets, right? If you have a particular skill set, there's individuals you can mentor or you can teach. Um, If you've got a community building, there's ways you can put events together. So I believe that we all can do something to not only improve our communities, but also the world.
0: That's like, I just want to sit with that for a moment Uh, because I, Really hope that many, so many, such an abundance of people share that feeling with you, AK, and and it's a feeling I share with you that, um, that we're, that we're moving in a much, an even more positive direction and that positive direction is strong. Um, and I, I asked you, actually asked you that pre-podcast, like, what's your advice to people. And, um, you just gave the long, elegant version of this. (laughs) You said, you know, people are becoming aware and momentum is moving in the right direction. And, um, you know, I, I think that, you know, one thing that I would love to do is, I mean, well, for starters, I'm very happy that I get to share your, your messages and like share with folks like who you are. Like, it's just, I mean, there's so many, and and here's the thing, like in, in true unbranded fashion, I mean, we could spend two more hours talking. We're not going to cover it all. Yeah. I mean, we barely scratched in the surface of like what you did to Oregon. And, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to poke the, the bear too much on the 2008 Olympics topic, but I know you just narrowly, you made it and then you and then you didn't make it. I mean, there's, there's a whole, there's a, there's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of story behind that too. Um, and, and I'm almost poking you into it a little bit. Um, yeah. I, I think I, I, I wouldn't mind you share actually sharing that story. Like what, what happened? Like you, you were, um, you were training for the Olympics and, and, and did you, did you qualify? And like, what I mean, what's the story there? That was like a lifelong dream of yours at one point.
1: It's a lifelong dream. And it, it, it's funny because it actually all does connect. Um, you know, and I finished, I was an all American athlete at the university of Oregon. Uh, was lucky to be you know, top 10 in the world. And I decided to do something. I decided to play football at Oregon. And, you know, the, during my redshirt senior year, and I ended up tearing my ACL. Now, for me, I was extremely frustrated because I felt as though, uh, you know, when I was done playing sports, I felt like I was just a number. right? Mm-hmm. I was gone, they brought the new class in, and I was completely fed up with sports because it felt as though the thing that I was training for my life was just uh, it was kind of hollow and, and especially was hollow because when I first left, it was hard for me to find a job. It was. And I always kept having conversations with people and they said, you know, what do you do? I was like, well, I was an all American athlete, you know, that's, <laughs> like that meant something, but it came to athletes. athlete. So what do you do? I'm like, well, That's what it was. Uh, so I felt like I was more of this, this, you know, the charade in which I did. But after I tore my ACL, I was, not interested in playing sports. I wasn't interested to get my knee reconstructed. I was still, I was like 40 pounds overweight. And I decided to go over. I was overseas with uh, my ex-girlfriend for just a graduation present. And this guy came up to me. He was, he was, P, he was a family friend of my ex-girlfriend. And he said, have you ever thought about you know, training for the Olympics? And I'm all like, this is not exactly <laughs> the body of an elite style athlete, 40 pounds of weight, packing back beers. Yeah. And But that conversation really stuck with me. And I ended up actually for the next six months, uh, training six hours a day, losing all the weight, um, and actually running some of the fastest times I've I've, I've ran before. And I was, uh, I got the opportunity to um, get onto the Nigerian Olympic team, my parents home country. And so I remember I was on the ground in in Nigeria and the Olympic trials was supposed to be a week, a week from the day I got on ground. And this is my first time traveling overseas, and I just got on the ground. And uh, one of the coaches comes up to me uh, late at night, and she says, you know this whole Olympic trials that we're going to do in a week? We have decided that we're actually going to do it tomorrow. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, but after traveling for like 24 hours, first time overseas. And she said, well, we're going to do it tomorrow, and you have to get top four. And so I remember, you know, I get on the ground. and say, you know, I'm going to ask you, I'm mentally tough. You know, we get on the ground, uh, getting to the track the next day and getting in that blocks and we're just the gun going off. I remember just, you know, running and, uh, you know, going down that back stretch and coming down the home stretch and just like, dipping at the line and looking up and I get third place. Right. right. So I get top four. Yeah. Right? Immediately they kind of shuttle us away and they're like, this is the Nigerian Olympic team. And this is like my lifelong dream of running in the Olympics. Yeah. And so the very next, the very next day, I, you know, I'm calling my coaches, calling my family. And I like, I made the team. We start, you know, uh, you know uh, spreading that around. And so the next day I have to go to Tunisia to, to do this qualifying, uh, to do this four by four relay. And so we go there. We didn't run the time that necessarily needed. And then I'm coming back. And we do this layover stop in Egypt. And i as in Egypt, uh, all I wanted to do was have this cold glass of water. And so I go to the bar. I got this cold glass of water. Later that night, I get to bed. And in the middle of my, the night, my stomach starts, you know, not feeling so well. And I'm sick as a dog. Mm. And so we end up traveling, get back into Nigeria. And this is roughly supposed to be like the day before the actual Olympic trials are supposed to be. Yeah. So I'm laying in my bed, feeling sick, and that same coach comes up to me and she's like, you know what like, the whole Olympic trial that we did a week ago? And I'm like, yeah, what's up? She's like, we've decided that we're going to redo it. And we're actually going to do it tomorrow. <clears throat> oh, my God. <laughs> and instead of this time, instead of there being two heaps of people that have qualified, this is now instead an open casting call, basically. And now there's like, like I think a 200-something athletes, 30-something heats. Right. Instead wow. of going to two heats, I now have to go through five. So I go through the first heat, I go through the second heat, but I don't make it through the third round, right? And all of a sudden, that feeling of knowing that I made the Olympics, all of a sudden, not making it and actually watching it at home in California um, on television was like my experience. Now, people ask me all the time, like, so how has that you know, experience changed you? You know, I have a lot of friends that are, uh, that made the Olympics. One of my co-founders, he, he made that Olympics and he was expecting that when he got that on the ground, when he got back, that his whole world was going to change. And so when he felt like, well, maybe the world hasn't changed because I only have one Olympics I you do instead of me to get two Olympics. Right. So four years later, he got, he got the Olympics, um, woke up the next day and expecting that the world would be different. And it was all the same. And the reason why this isn't so important is because for me, there's so many times where I said, "You know what? All I need to do is just make that Olympics, and then I can go maybe reach out to Nike for this, you know, this idea that I have, or then maybe that I can then speak." And I realized that most of the time that it was because of these things that I would achieve or wanted that was actually hold me back from the things that I really wanted.
0: Yeah, just go and do it. Like, yeah, yeah,
1: just go and do it. And, and, and that's one of them today.
0: One of the best uh, achievements you had in all of that was you were, you know, 40 pounds overweight and you decided, you know what, I'm going to go and do this. It's like, I don't know. Have you ever seen that 30 for 30 with Marcus Dupree, the best that never was? No, no. You'll love it. So, so look this one up. It's the best that never was. It's one of my favorite 30 for 30s. Marcus Dupree was like the greatest, like one of the greatest high school football players ever. He's considered to have been like almost like nearly as good as like Bo Jackson. Right. Mm -hmm. you know how good Bo Jackson athlete he was. He goes to uh, Oklahoma, Barry Switzer, doesn't know how to coach like a kind of like a, you know, non alpha dog. And like Marcus was a very like he was introverted He never big ego, super humble. Basically, Marcus gets driven in the USFL because he just leaves Oklahoma because he can't handle Barry Switzer. And to this day, Barry Switzer says it's it's his biggest um, mistake he made as a coach was how he coached Marcus Dupree. Marcus Dupree goes to the USFL, blows out his knee. Mm. blows out his knee best running back of a generation doesn't go to the NFL goes home, but he's, you know, he's like, Hey, it's fine. I couldn't do it. He's got, he actually had a, um, he has a brother who's, who's got, um, disabilities goes home, takes care of of his brother, becomes a truck driver. Fast forward, like eight years, he's 30 year old man, really overweight living in small town South and he just, it just dawns on him. You know what? I really wanted to achieve that dream. So he goes and he sheds like whatever he had to shed 60 pounds, gets shredded up. And he goes and makes the Houston Oilers mm. and plays like, and makes the NFL for one season. And then he's like, all right, I did it. And he leaves. And he's just like, oh, he wanted, he wanted to prove, he just wanted to prove it to himself. Um, you might dig it. It's really cool. But the, the, the I think the point that I'm making here is like, whether or not Marcus Dupree made that team and he actually like made the team played a little and like, bar- you know, he barely played and whether or not you actually ran in the Olympics, like the challenge you overcame, the determination you had in that moment. It's just like, it's the type of story that it's insp- inspiring to, to all, you know, to many people it's inspiring to me. But I think as you and I have identified, we're in the fathers of Daughters club and inspiring our, our beautiful, little girls is, is the most important thing in our lives. And so I think that that's something that's special that you'll always have to, to share with her and that she'll be able to sort of draw strength from.
1: Well, I not even touch on that. You know, a lot of people talk about entrepreneurship as starting a, you know, a business, but I actually believe my first entrepreneurial journey was me deciding I wanted to train for the Olympics. Yeah. When I, when I decided that I want to put, you know, life in my own hands and just not, you know, I was 40 pounds of weight, in a small town. I was know I was living a life that I didn't want to live. Now, without me making that decision to train for the Olympics, Olymp- a power to play never would have happened. You know, the speaking never would have happened. The work that I do today never would have happened because they all built yeah. off one another. So, yes, it may not have worked into the, the Olympics, but everything that came from that decision has affected so many people, including myself.
0: Yeah, I really love that. I love that mindset. Like, the, the, and I, I hope that's not lost on listeners. Like the entrepreneurial, like your first entre- entrepreneurial plunge is the moment that you're sort of like you you have the sort of desire, you know, to put yourself out there, perhaps in a in a place of you know vulnerability um, to write uh, write your own path to sort of create your own. Um, success your own fortune um sort of independent well, independent of what skeptics may say independent what you know maybe otherwise s- seems to be you know what other others may think is a ceiling for you to achieve it's sort of like going out to achieve maybe that's another way to look at it too like going out to achieve a much higher ceiling than anyone other- otherwise would would um would grant you the ceiling to achieve it's like going out and just Going after the most aspirational goal that gives you purpose, and that's being an entrepreneur.
1: Exactly, like my brother—he's an actor in Hollywood. Right, I haven't started a business, but there came to a point where he sold everything and just moved to LA yeah. uh, to, 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 to set his own career's forward. You know, and he's been lucky to work with and um, you know some of the biggest actors in the, in, in, in the industry, and it all because of a decision that he made. I think that's where we are right now. I think we all want the world to be a better place. I think we all want it to be better for ourselves, for our loved ones. And I think we're at that time where we believe that we can, this place, this America that we live in can be better. And when people are deciding to get off their couch and decide to, you know, protest to lock arms and and, and, and march, I feel like they're deciding that, yes, enough is enough. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. I want something different
0: yeah yeah those are good those are good like sort of closing remarks as we come up to the end here i'd be curious if you had any other parting remarks just for the you know for for boston and, and beyond and, and and in particular if you have any i mean i don't know if this stokes anything in you too and if we go a little further on this topic i'd mm-hmm. I'd welcome it I, I am incredibly impressed and moved um and inspired by the protests and i see you know it's a couple of my best friends in dc every day peacefully protesting and you see what's going on in cities across america you know some footage in philadelphia recently that like really moved me gave me chills in the most positive way just that you know the way people come together in solidarity um and maybe i'm missing it but it just seems that there's like i'm a marketer it seems the cta is missing like the call to action it's like sure. what's the what's the clean, clear call to action? Like when everyone is protesting and that's getting covered by the news, like what's the tag. And I know, you know, like it's good for humans to be unbranded, but it's good for causes and businesses to have taglines and elevator pitches for a reason. And I think what's really going to help this movement that we're in is for there to be some uniformity across and some really crystal clear calls to action. It doesn't have to be one could be multiple calls to action, but like some sort of like a declaration, or, or or sort of you know you know one two three you know few you know couple two three hit list of like this is what we want you know like us uh, and the NFL players just did this they pushed the NFL which is like a almost a, it's like a barbarian organization the way these billionaire owners run the NFL and mistreat um, in particular um, black players and the way they've um, pushed away Colin Kaepernick Mm -hmm. and just the way that they've shied away from, um, you know, the racism, you know, discussion of racism and the way they've penalized players for, for kneeling that whole, all that bullshit NFL players just came out. And did you see this video? They put this video out. and It was just so moving. They were like, NFL, this is, here you go. You need to step up and here's what you say. It was the most, it was the most amazing example of, Solidarity across teams, players across teams, a crystal clear statement and a crystal clear call to action. NFL. And here we crescendo with this. Here is what you need to step up and say. And the NFL stepped up and, and, you know, shortly after and they and they took on some ownership of the topic um, like they never have before. And so I guess that's what I'm getting at is like these protests and this movement needs it needs that clear call to action. Like what are we, what, what is being asked for? Because we do need to have some simple, not simple, but we do have to have some asks here um, so that, you know, people can actually feel like that. We're realizing a goal and we're, you know, fulfilling uh, some sort of, you know, promise for progress.
1: I, I 100% agree. And it, I, I put it to be, when we think of social media, I mean, because of social media, was the reason why this was able to spread literally across the world what happened to George Floyd. In the same way, it's also in some ways hurt uh, progress. I'm going to say why. Now, in, you know, when it was happening with the civil rights movement, you had individual leaders. You had a source of truth where people mm-hmm. could go to and say, well, this is part of the movement. This is not part of the movement. But right? so yeah. with social media, everybody has a voice. And so people don't actually know what is that call to action, right? We all know about protests. We all know about, um, you know, rights. We all know about Black Lives Matter. But I 100% agree. Just like the civil rights movement, like, we want to be able to be able to vote. We want to end civil rights. With women, we want to say we want to be able to vote. With gay rights, we want to be able to marry just like everyone else. Yeah. So I completely agree that there needs to be, I believe in this, It needs to be one source of truth. And says this is what we want because as soon as a story comes out where somebody's like, Hey, we want to defund all the police, somebody else might say, That's not what I want. Yeah. Right. Right. So for me, I would say there has to be one source of truth and you have to get people they're all excited. People are like, We wanna do something. Just direct our energy somewhere. If you want us to all make, you know, vote for you know mandatory police body cameras, right? Body cameras. If we wanna vote for this, just give us something because I think people are kind of scrambling. And at some point we know, just time and time again, that the protest will end. Right? The yeah. protest will end at some point. And when that happens, we don't want to wait until the next situation happens for people to be able to say, This is what we want to do. So it feels a little bit reactionary, um, because we're waiting for a situation people are waiting for a situation to arise when we should already have these are the steps that we should take. If this happens, we want this, we want X, we want Y, and we want Z, yeah. uh, you know. Um, that's what I believe. So I believe yeah. some of the call to actions may be, is it, is it just about police? Is it just about, you know, is it just about racism, right? And I think the issue is because it is so systemic, there's so many parts that are involved, but just like the gay rights movement, I think just need one main call to action, that would at least get the ball rolling. Mine would be just accountability. How can we create an accountability within the police force to start it out, and then take on that next step. The yeah. next step.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think part of the yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure part of the hesitation of maybe of folks who have spent maybe you know, I'm sure, I'm sure much more time than I have thinking about this is like identifying that common truth and call to action that folks will agree on, but. Definitely, definitely needs to come. I think you're, I think you're onto it with it being something to do with sort of, it, cause it's around like, you know, human rights should be that law enforcement not do what law enforcement so sadly, um, you know, often can do to um, black Americans. And so I think having like a very unified, like call um, to action around um a very clear and universally accepted, like, um, you know, decree as to, you know, wh- like what is the standard of excellence that needs to be expected for law enforcement vis-a-vis all constituents and, and not bending and and, and like raising the, you know, the floor, if you will, um, uh, because it's some real murky water out there. Um, and that, and, and that we need to sort of, uh,
1: yeah. Well, I wouldn't even make yeah. it a black and white issue. I, I mean, yeah. black and police. I would say it's a human right issue. I think yeah. it would just be better for all officers to 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 be more accountable. Like, why shouldn't why shouldn't? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think so. I, by making it more of a human right, in addition, I mean, yeah. yes, the black and rule, but everybody will. I think everybody would want accountability to happen. If you're going to go to the court of law, you want to make sure there's video evidence, so it's not he said versus she said yeah right? that's one of them so just general accountability and that's what i believe this is really all about to me is it's about human rights and consistency yeah so for example when they're talking about black lives matter a lot of people all lives matter like well we get that well the think about it you know sometimes if if, if 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 citizens did what police officers did right for example if you walked outside you're in a club and you were holding somebody down and somebody was choking and then two of your friends are holding them down. And then there was a person doing a lookout. You know, that guy doing a lookout would be an accomplice to murder, right? The other two people would be also charged. And all we're saying is just consistency. What you do to one side, make sure you do the same thing to the other side.
0: Um, yeah, that's right. I think
1: that's what really should be the, the, the agenda. Like how can we all just get on the same page and say, this is what we want in terms of consistency on all sides.
0: Yeah, well said. Ak, we got to get this podcast out there and, and put some mm-hmm. uh, some pressure on Marty Walsh to uh, to, to chat with you and, and go through the unbranded exercise. You think we could get him? Let's get him on the podcast. And if you have anyone else that you would like to um, you know interview, like I, I'll gladly uh, support you in in moving over to the host chair uh, as your sort of navigating the seas, seas ahead and facilitating conversation and, and looking to help bring upon positive change.
1: I'd be happy to, and thank you about it. I appreciate it. Yeah, and I'll get them on. We'll get them on. Yeah.
0: Yeah, we'll get them on. We'll get them on. I, it sounds like, I mean, you, you and Marty have a relationship already, which is great. Maybe pushing this out there and, and maybe we'll get a little bit of the, the community around the podcast to, to, to put a little, um some public recommendation in his direction for him, for him to, to chat, chat with you. Um, that'd be really, that'd be really wonderful. Well, this is, this has been a pleasure and uh, I'm really excited to share this with, with sort of the Boston Speaks Up community. Um, you know, AK, like it, it, when this is all done too, I'm looking forward to getting together, get the, get the girls together Have a nice little day in Boston. Hopefully, uh, hopefully on the other side of this, this pandemic.
1: Sounds like it's almost done. Hopefully, it doesn't come down yeah. and spike up again. So, <laughs> yeah,
0: hopefully. yeah, hopefully, right? Fingers crossed.
1: I yeah. uh, appreciate so much for just having me on and just, you know engaging this conversation. And I think it's just something that just needs to happen.
0: Yeah, no, I really thank you for that. I, I'm super grateful for your time and and uh, talk soon. Look forward to getting this out there and and appreciate the newfound friendship and looking forward to. Um, collaborating with you in the sort of months and years ahead.
1: I'm good. All right. Have a good day,
0: man. Awesome. Cheers. Cheers, all Boston. All right. so good.
1: Peace.